We have been just finishing the church season we call the season of Advent. And Advent is a season of waiting, a waiting for Christmas to come. And I don't know about you all, we traveled over the holidays, we had about a week, so we packed the kids in the minivan and we drove down to Georgia. And I-95 involves a lot of waiting. (laughs) So does I-85. And if you traveled by air, there's a lot of waiting. You know, travel, travel these days is definitely part of the fall, it seems. You wait. And it struck me as you watch, even as you look at the cars beside you or as you stand in the security line, some people wait better than others. Some people have patience and peace. You know, I dare say almost, I don't know if I can say this in a church, but a zen-like approach to the whole thing. And other people just go bonkers. You think, dude, yelling's not going to get you there any faster. People wait so differently. So hold that thought for a second. Um, Our sermon series during Advent has been a series of examinations of people as they meet God. People as they encounter the Lord. All building and culminating at what James preached on Christmas Eve. About meeting God in the flesh. God incarnate. And tonight, we finish that sermon series looking at one more fact, the fact that, and this is how the two themes come together, as Christians, we're in fact still in Advent. Because Advent's not meant merely to point backwards as we wait for Christmas to come. It's meant to point forwards that we are all waiting, waiting for Christ to come again. And so our text this morning is Acts, or this morning, this evening, is Acts chapter 1, Verses 1 to 11. So if you'll look with me. Luke, the author of the book, writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he'd said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of our Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, as we come tonight, we come praying that you will, by that same Holy Spirit, the one sent to the apostles, the one who resides in each of our hearts, by his work that we would be enlightened, that you would take these stone-filled hearts, 
these rock-hard hearts and instead would break them open, that you would make them living hearts of flesh, that you would work in us, that we would hear the truth of your word, that we'd be changed by the good news, that we would even leave here different people having met with you. Would you do that in us, we pray, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you were to go down the Beltway to 66 and head out about 30 miles, you get to Manassas Battlefield, the site of two great battles of the American Civil War, or if you're from where I'm from, the War of Yankee Aggression. Now, the first of those two battles is often called, somewhat infamously, the Picnic Battle. The Picnic Battle, because many, many people from Washington, D.C., packed their lunch and picnic baskets and headed out west to watch the show. To watch what they expected would be the quick and easy rout of the Confederate forces by the Union troops, a smashing of this rebellion. And so you had the incredibly surreal experience of people packing packing picnic baskets to go watch a war. That would be comical if it weren't so tragic. Now, if you see a Hollywood version of this, it's like the people are camped on a hill with bullets whizzing over their head right in the middle of the battle. It actually wasn't quite that. They basically went about five miles east of the battle to Centerville, where they could see forwards. But even so, it's this tragic comic understanding. So we have a note from the London Times correspondent of that period. He wrote this. On the hill beside me, there was a crowd of civilians on horseback and in all sorts of vehicles, with a few of the fairer, if not gentler, sex. The spectators were all excited, and a lady with an opera glass who was near me was quite beside herself when an unusually heavy discharge roused the current of her blood. This is splendid. Oh my, is this not first rate? I guess we will be in Richmond tomorrow. Now, of course, you know they were not in Richmond tomorrow. In fact, this throng of civilians was soon enveloped in the rout of fleeing Union soldiers rushing back to D.C. to try to save their own hides. Their expectation of a quick and easy victory, in fact, was dashed. It was the beginning of the bloodiest war in American history that would grind on for year after merciless year. And in the immediate thing, they were actually in mortal danger because of false expectations. And D.C. is a town that every four years majors in false expectations. Every four years, maybe every eight years, depending on whether the administration changes, you get a new crop of people who come in with an expectation that they will change everything. It won't take long. They'll do the work. And almost always, that expectation is dashed. Because in fact, and I don't care which side of the aisle you're on, the problems that people in government work on are difficult, big problems. Now understand, real change can happen, but it rarely happens quickly. And it rarely happens anyway as easily as the people coming in think it will be. And so in our political system, two years later, the party that won the presidency is almost always shellacked by voters whose expectations weren't met. False expectations. My office and Roberts and James and David fill up with people who came and moved here with this great expectation of what they would do and are now disillusioned with the process. Happens in our political system. 
happens in marriage. Two people get married, they have this huge pile of often even unstated and maybe even unknown expectations of what their spouse is going to be like. And before long, of course, their spouse isn't like that. And the process of growing in a marriage is at least partly the process of surfing, surfacing those applications, those expectations, examining them, trying to say, are they even real? Are they right? Are they good? Or are they completely unreasonable? Are they false? And then recognizing even with the ones that are reasonable and good, your spouse will fail them many a time. False expectations. Happens in jobs. People start a job. They are so excited. This will fulfill me. It will be fun. We'll have neat office parties. We will do great work. And I will feel the fullness of what I should be in my vocation. When they find out that work is, well, hard work, the expectations are dashed. And if you're under 30, you need to know, often they get fired fairly shortly thereafter. False expectations. And it's certainly true of church. People come to church full of expectations. James will always preach an amazing sermon that's biblically deep, that's witty and funny, yet somehow cuts me to the quick, but not in a way that makes me feel too bad. And I'll come out feeling great and convicted all at the same time every week. And, you know, if Bill's going or David's going or Robert's going, somehow they'll sound Scottish. I don't know. The worship will always be exactly the way I like it. It'll be my favorite songs every week. Um, The church will always carry my burdens in such a way that my life seems light and easy and without trouble. I hate to break it to you, but false expectations. In almost every area of life, we come in with huge piles of expectations. And we need to hit the reset button. We need to hit the reset button, honestly. And that's what Acts chapter 1 does for us, is it lets us reset our expectations and live with both a hope and a realism because we understand what God's plan is. It lets us reset our applications. It lets us live with a hope and a realism Because we understand what God's plan is. So we're going to look at that tonight just under two headings. One, the wrong expectation. In this passage you see it in the first six verses. And two, the right expectation. Verses 7 to 11. The wrong expectation, the right expectation. So first, look at your Bible. Acts chapter 1. The wrong expectation is simply, we expect the wrong things out of Jesus. Luke starts it off in verses 1 to 3. And he says, hey, in my previous book, The author of this book, Acts, is also the author of the Gospel of Luke that bears his name. And he says to the disciples, to the apostles, to the readers, hey, look back at the previous book where he talked about Christ's life, his earthly ministry, and then his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. The last three of those were a complete shock to the apostles. Blew apart their expectations. First thing you need to know for this passage to make a lot of sense is their expectations were in fact entirely reasonable. You'd even say biblical. As they approached the life of Christ, working out of the way they read the Old Testament prophets, which is, I dare say, the same way you and I would, they never thought Messiah was supposed to die. They never envisioned a Messiah who would suffer. Their understanding of Messiah is a Messiah who would come and lead them to conquer all the surrounding peoples and more. I could pick probably a hundred different examples from the prophets. 
Here's one. It's from the book of Amos, chapter 9. Here you have verse 11 and 12. In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do those things. Understand, they would have, they would have taken this literally. They will shatter the nation of Edom. They will destroy and kill many of its soldiers. And the ones that they haven't killed, they will take as slaves. They will possess them. That was what they would understand. This is what it meant for kingdom to come, as far as I understood, for Messiah to bring the kingdom. So Luke 24 tells us they should have seen something different. But this was a complete surprise to them when Messiah went and died. And in fact, biblically, you can understand why. We are able, knowing the end of the story, to read backwards. And so we can read the prophets and we can see that Messiah was going to suffer. But it's fair to say that was a minor theme compared to Messiah conquering. So verses 1 to 3, they never thought Messiah was going to suffer. That blew their expectations up. But now they get it. Now they're thinking, on this side, having met the risen Lord, they say, Jesus, we get it now. We understand. We thought you were just here to conquer Edom and Ammon and all the nations around us. Now we understand Messiah was here to even conquer death. The promise was bigger than we could ever imagine. Now we get it, Jesus. Now we see what you're doing. Now we've got our expectations right. And it looks like Jesus doubles down on that in verses 4 and 5. Because he says, go back to Jerusalem and wait, and there you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Now to understand what that meant to them, we have to realize what the coming of the Spirit of God meant in the Old Testament. And their reference point, when the Spirit of God came on someone, he came on that person to lead Israel in military victory. If you go back to the book of Judges, the Spirit of God came on Samson, and then he started smiting Philistine enemies right and left. The Spirit of God came on Jephthah, And he led them in victory over the nation of Ammon. So as they hear the idea the Holy Spirit's going to come on them, verse 6 is a completely natural question. Are you at this time going to bring the kingdom back to Israel? In other words, we get it now. Now that you rose from the dead, we get it. Is it go time? Is it time? Is the kingdom come? Messiah going to do now what we thought? It's a completely normal expectation, except it was wrong. Now, one more thing before we go on. Understand what it meant for them to have the kingdom of God come in Messiah. It was not just political and military victory. For Messiah to come and bring in the kingdom to them meant a perfect world. Isaiah talks about it and he says things like the new heavens and the new earth. Like the lion lying down with the lamb. Like no more suffering, no more pain, no more trouble. Every person living in complete security and with complete plenty. You can't overstate what it meant for them. Messiah was supposed to make the world perfect. And so they say, is it time, Lord? Verse 6. And Jesus responds in verse 7 and says, it's not yours to know. In other words, I'm not going to even answer your question because you're not asking about the right thing. Because they have the wrong expectations about what God's doing. Now, before we go on, what we have to say is, so do we. We have the wrong expectations of Jesus. Happens a lot of times in our personal lives. We think he's just supposed to fix it, whatever it is. 
whether he's supposed to fix your spouse or he's supposed to fix your lack of a spouse or your job or your lack of a job or your kids or your family or your church. Jesus is just supposed to fix it. We do the same thing worldwide. We say, well, if he's really good and he's God, then there ought to be no suffering. We pin the blame on him that this world has so much suffering. We say he can't be who he really says he is because he hasn't fixed it. And especially if you have been sold a shallow, oversimplified version of Christianity, your faith can just blow up on the fact that, you know what? Life is hard. There are all sorts of things that don't get fixed. The doctor comes in and says, I hate to tell you, but it's cancer. The person you thought you loved comes in and tells you, I hate to tell you, but I'm on my way. The job doesn't work. Many a person has had their faith run aground on the shoals of unmet expectations. Because truth is, we have so often the wrong expectation. The wrong expectation of Jesus. We think he's supposed to make it right. That he's supposed to make it good just the way it should be right now. And understand, that wrong expectation hurts us. It harms us. If we live a life where our understanding of that life is that we are supposed to have no trouble, no suffering, no pain, no difficulty, we'll chase that life. And when we chase that life, we hurt ourselves. We do damage to ourselves. What do you think a drug is or a lot of drinks other than an attempt to chemically get that high that really is only offered us when we live with our Lord forever? What do you think just ongoing acting out in terms of sex is supposed to be other than an attempt to physically get the emotional connection that you're supposed to have with your Lord? When we go and we try to live a life that's pain-free, we almost inevitably inoculate ourselves against the real healing that he could do in our life. Um, One of my friends wrote me an email a few weeks ago. This is what he said. He said, two Fridays ago, I was playing ultimate frisbee, and I elected to block the throw of a guy much larger than I with my face. This apparently generated a cut all the way through my cheek, over one inch long, starting from the right corner of my mouth and headed northeast. It didn't hurt too bad or bleed that much, but fortunately the people with me had the sense to realize I should be taken to the urgent care center and sewn up. The doctor ended up causing more pain and administering Novocaine and stitches. And then this past Thursday, even more removing them. Now, of course, I'm smart enough to understand that this was for my good. But what if I were a small child? Would I not consider the doctor inhumane and adding to my suffering? And what if I simply were unable to understand what is happening? I think that must be what goes on in the problem of evil. We're just incapable of understanding how this much pain could really somehow contribute to our good. If we chase a life with no pain, we chase something that's not even real, it's not even good for us, and we open ourselves up to a remarkable disillusionment. Because it's a false expectation. It's not what Jesus promised us. Let's look at the other side, verses 7 to 11. What he promises is the right expectation. In response to everything they ask, we might say a completely reasonable question, Jesus says three things. The first of them is in verse 7. 
He says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. It's very important to realize how Jesus answers them. He doesn't say no. He doesn't say you misread the Bible. He doesn't say you've got the kingdom wrong. He says you've got the timing wrong. He says all of those promises, he he in a sense validates it. But he says, it's not for you to know the time. Revelation, the last book of our Bible, chapters 19 to 21, says Jesus will come back at the head of an army of angels to set everything right. The expectation's fine, the timing's off. He says, it's not for you to know the timing. Second, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That, by the way, is the outline for the book of Acts. Jesus says, second, it's about witness. And it's about witness far beyond where you could imagine to the entire world. And third, verse 9, he goes away. Talk about something they didn't expect. He leaves. He says, I'm going to go away and you will be my witnesses while I'm gone. And then verses 10 to 11, two angels appear beside him, beside them, and they say, hey, why are you looking up into heaven? He will come back, and trust me, you won't be able to miss it. It will be just the way you saw him going. This truth is what gives us the ability to wait with a realism as a hope. Because we recognize that he has given us a world to live in in which he has not promised us it will be perfect. Now, he has promised us he will come again to make it perfect. But he hasn't promised us that yet. And this gives us all the ability to understand and to process the world we actually live in, which is this amazing mix of wonderful and horrible. It means you won't be shattered when your world has all sorts of evil and difficulty in it. It won't be shattered when you watch the news and hear of the newest bombing or the newest problem. Because the Christian understands this world is between his first and second coming. He has been here, but we still wait for him to come back. You won't be shattered as horrible and hard as it would be if your marriage doesn't work. If your spouse doesn't meet your expectations. If your job doesn't work out. If you lose your mortgage. Those these things are hard. We have the ability to understand them because we have the right expectation for the world we live in. You know, John the Baptist had to learn this. If you look over at Matthew chapter 11, there's a really fascinating little interaction. I'm going to start in verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Do you realize this is John the Baptist? And the question he's asking Jesus is, are you the guy or not? This is John the Baptist who baptized Jesus, who saw heaven split open, saw the Holy Spirit come down on Jesus like a dove, heard God the Father say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is John the Baptist who saw Jesus going and said to his disciples, There goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now John is saying, "Um, Jesus, are you the guy? Or did I misunderstand? 
Why is John asking this? Because what Jesus was doing didn't fit any of his expectations. Where is John asking this from? He's in prison. You know why he's in prison? He's in prison because he told the king that it was not biblical for him to swap wives with his brother. He stood up for biblical values, tried to live the way that God would have people live, call for the things God would have them call for, and so he got thrown in jail. And jail back then was not a permanent location. You were in jail till you were either released or killed. And John probably knows what's going to happen, and in fact it happens in a very short time later. A young girl dances so seductively in front of a king that the king says, I'll give you anything you want in my kingdom. And she goes to her mom and says, what should I ask for? And her mom says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And she gets it. John didn't expect this out of Jesus. John expected Jesus was Messiah who was going to make all things right. So he says, did I miss it? Because this doesn't fit what I expected. And listen to what Jesus says back to him, starting in verse 4. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. That's quite a list, isn't it? Even more than quite a list, Jesus is quoting. Jesus is in fact quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah chapter 61, the first verse and a half. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says, hey John, all those prophets that you got your expectation of, yes, I'm doing it. But the amazing, curious thing is Jesus stops mid-quote, mid-verse in Isaiah. Here's how Isaiah goes on that Jesus doesn't quote. And the day of vengeance of our God. And to comfort all who mourn. And to provide for those who grieve in Zion. And to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. To give a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Why does Jesus stop halfway through what Isaiah promised? Because he's telling John, John, I've done enough for you to believe I'm going to do the rest. John, look, all those expectations you have of Messiah, they are all happening. I've done enough of them that even though it's not meeting your expectations, you can trust my timing is right and I'm going to do the rest. been on hold a lot my computer died and of course setting up the new one is supposed to be easy and is it no and so you're on hold you get in you call in you get through like 50,000 voice prompts that are trying to keep you from actually getting to a human being you finally get to hold and then the computer comes on and says you'll be on hold for 18 minutes why did all the phone companies and cable companies and everybody else in the help desk do that They do it because they know that if you know what to expect, you'll be less of a raving jerk to the customer service representative when they finally get to you. Now, when it comes down to it, if you waited for 18 minutes but you didn't know how long it was going to be, you'd sit there getting madder and madder and madder for 18 minutes. 
But if they tell you 18 and then it's 17, you feel great. Right? They manage your expectations because if you know what to expect, you can handle what you're going through. Well, Jesus apparently doesn't think we need to know how long it's going to be. He says it's not for you to know the days or the seasons or the years that the Father's fixed. But he does tell us what to expect. He does tell us how to understand the world we live in. And he does set our expectations right. We've got to expect the right things. To be blunt, Jesus doesn't promise you your best life right now. He promises you witness. And he promises us our best life still to come. And so we wait in hope and expectation of him, of Jesus our salvation, who will come just as the disciples saw him go. So let's pray together. God our Father, we pray that you would work this truth into our soul. We confess that we are all liable to expect you to do things you haven't promised us. We pray that you would set us to expect the right things, to hope in the right things, to live our lives with both a hope and a realism, that you would work in us a deeper faith, that you would work a biblical truth into our hope and into our lives. Would you do that, we pray, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.